Welcome to the Road to Reinvention podcast. I'm your host, Sherelle Dorsey, tech founder, author, speaker, and networking connoisseur. After several successful businesses and what many would consider a life well-lived, I found myself struggling after earning all of my gold stars to answer the simple question of what's next. Once you've done everything you said you would do and then some, do you create just another goal? Do you hang it up? Do you pivot and show up in a new space? Do you do something you're passionate about and damn proud of? Or do you once and for all decide to put that kind of energy into your personal life and put the work aside? I don't know yet, but I have tons of friends and colleagues and people I admire that have tracked this same journey who will be joining us this season to bear it all. How they answer the question that left them puzzled after earning the highest of highs. Join me in tuning in to hear from those who learn to navigate their own road to reinvention. Welcome back to The Road to Reinvention. Today, I'm so excited to welcome my next guest, Leanne Buchanan. She's a writer, a facilitator, a strategic advisor who explores how equity intersects with tech. This is why you all know that I love her. As well as innovation, social investment, all of the things to transform organizations as well as communities. Leanne's insights and ideas have been featured in New York Times, Inc. Magazine, NPR, PBS, Bloomberg, the American Psychological Association, ABA Journal, all over the place. With over 15 years of experience in diversity, equity, and inclusion, real experience, Leanne has supported public, private, and philanthropic leaders at Fortune 500 companies and private foundations to build greater capacity and accelerate equity. She's raised over five and a half million dollars in equity-free capital to fund a diverse social impact portfolio and has helped syndicate over $55 million in philanthropic capital for digital equity initiatives. Leanne is also the co-host of the award-winning Innovation City podcast, which I have also had the privilege of being on. And today I am not just thrilled, but I am honored to invite her to this conversation as our guest. Leanne, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, let's go ahead and dive okay. in. So Leanne, you are someone who I got an opportunity to meet a couple years ago, being mm-hmm. introduced to you through the Miami innovation ecosystem, yep. tech ecosystem. And you've been someone who has never stopped evolving or pushing boundaries from, you know, you are an attorney. <laughs> And worked as an attorney and have evolved into several different iterations from, you know, running an incredible nonprofit that we're going to speak about, um, exposing young people to opportunities and Mm -hmm. areas of service, um, and then really creating ventures that are in service to others as well, um, especially the Miami ecosystem. And we had Matt Hagman here on the show uh, really talking about a lot of the things that you helped to spearhead from like Opportunity Miami to Air Ventures. Mm -hmm. And I know that now you're also in some new level of reinvention. And so I want to dive into that, but take take us along your journey um, thus far. Oh, that's a loaded question, Cheryl. (laughs) But uh, yes, I am a recovering attorney. And so (laughs) I practiced law in Miami for about eight and a half years before I made the transition to the tech and innovation space. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, it was kind of scary 
because I had identified just as a lawyer, I can solve legal problems, but I also saw that innovation as a tool to make the community better, to help people make their lives better. And so I transitioned to leading the Venture Cafe. So I launched and kind of grew the Venture Cafe in Miami, Mm -hmm. which was really an organization that focused on making Miami's tech and innovation community more connected, more accessible, more inclusive, and more equitable. Mm -hmm. We were able to serve about 55,000 innovators over five years and partner with about 1,000 organizations. Um, And then the pandemic hit, and we lost 98% of our revenue. And we couldn't gather in person, and we principally had a several hundred person event every Thursday. And so... It's really apropos that we're talking about reinvention because we had to pivot and reinvent the model to, which is now Air Ventures, focusing on how do you scale social impact? Mm -hmm. How do you design nonprofits that have a sustainable revenue model, but also do not undermine the level of support and value they bring to the lives of people Mm -hmm. who don't have access, um, who may not have the same opportunities, and who may be on the wrong side of economic or social mobility because of racial inequities. And so Air Ventures is a social impact venture studio that aims to do that. Um, And I would say this journey, and now I'm on a a new path, but, but, (laughs) but up until this point, the journey has really taught me to focus on the through lines. And for me, the through line has always been kind of my mantra, which you and I have talked about, people, purpose, and impact over everything else. And, and at this point, I really realized my superpower, what I do well and what I want to spend more time doing is really helping leaders learn how to accelerate equity. Mm-hmm. I think equity is a competency of leadership, but we don't think about it as such. Right, correct. We talk about communication skills, strategy, um, how to even restructure a company, but we're not taught how to be good practitioners of equity. And so what I've learned through all the projects that I've built, um, Tech Equity Miami, NIA Project, Opportunity Connect, is that equity is a skill that we need to learn to practice. And I think I've developed um, a way to help people unlock that power. Yeah. I want to understand a bit why you decided that being an attorney would not be your pathway to doing this work, and maybe you didn't have a sense of what your work would be after leaving traditional law practice and deciding, I want to play a role in helping to grow an ecosystem and creating these opportunities for equity. But walk me through what your thinking was when you decided, okay, law is like not my thing, Mm -hmm. or it's not the thing that I want to do forever. And like, I could imagine that there had to be some level of reflection and awareness to wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to put in my two weeks notice and I'm going to figure out what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. So I am not that risk oriented. Okay. <laughs> so I had a plan. Okay. I definitely had a plan. And, and so it honestly started, um, I am a bit of a nerd. So I finished high school when I was 16 and I moved to the United States from Canada to attend college. Mm-hmm. I finished law school. And where'd you go to undergrad? The great Bethune Cookman University. Uh, HBCU. HBCU. All right. Um, <laughs> and I finished undergrad at 19 
Um, and I started practicing law when I was 23. And I share that because I was really, really accelerated. I was always moving and moving on to the next thing. And when I, when I started the NIA project, which I know we're going to talk about um, in more detail in a moment, one of the things that we do with our fellows is we have these leadership labs. Where we ask deep questions about what we want to do, what impact we want to have on the world. And so I was asking the students um, one summer, we were in Costa Rica, and I said, what are you most proud of? And they're like, Miss Leanne, what are you most proud of? <laughs> and to be honest, it wasn't my career as a lawyer. Mm. And to your point about reflection, it was an interesting moment to say, okay, if I am spending 60, 70, 80 hours a week in this profession, and I had wanted to be a lawyer since I was four years old. And so my entire professional identity was really wrapped, wrapped up, up in becoming an attorney. Yeah, I, yeah. Was, I was the nerdy kid in, in high school that carried a pocket criminal code around. Like I was really always wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. And so the reflection point for me was, okay, what can I do that gives me joy that adds value in the way that I feel fulfilled working with all these amazing young students to help create opportunities for them, but also allows me to flex my muscles and skill sets that I've spent, quite frankly, a lot of time investing and developing. I think all too often when people are going to make a pivot, when they're reinventing themselves, kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that they try to make such a strong, sharp departure from everything they knew without taking time to really say, how do I look at the foundational skill set and see how it might translate into a different industry? So that's what I did. I said, what am I good at? Okay, I'm a great writer because I'm a litigator. I'm a trial lawyer, so I'm pretty good at public speaking. Um, I'm really good at strategy because litigation is all about strategy. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at industries where I thought I could add value. I had some work in policy through a lot of um, efforts that I was doing in the ABA, but I was like, government and policy, I don't have the patience for it. Mm -hmm. And so I, quite frankly, I was quite impressed with the tech companies that I saw, like Google and Facebook at the time, were able to use technology and innovation to solve real challenges in community at a much faster pace and with solutions that I hadn't seen. And so that was kind of the decision tree, Mm -hmm. if you will, for me transitioning from, you know, traditional white shoe law firm environment into launching kind of an innovation-oriented social impact organization. I love that you slowed down for a second and you... Mm -hmm allowed yourself to really see those areas of transferable skills and which industries based on your personality or I love what you said, you know, because I I, I did a stint as a fellow in government and policy and I was like, we're not we're not getting this done. We're just going to keep talking about it Mm -hmm. and then talk about it some more and then fight about it and then talk about it some more. I'm like, probably not going to work for me. (laughs) And yeah, and then jumped into I want to go back into tech like hopping into Uber, hopping into Google Fiber, and really seeing like, hey, I can be a part of something that is making change on a fundamental grassroots level. And I love that you slowed down and had that thought and then decided these are the moves that I'm going to make because it allowed you to almost speed up and accelerate because Mm -hmm. you were so clear, like here's what my next steps may look like. And I think that for so many of us, when we are tired of something, we just jump into the next thing. And I know like truthfully, that's kind of been, I'm very like risk tolerant, you know? I'm like, yeah, let's go do it today. Um, but I love the level of thoughtfulness in which you decided to move. And so, so was that next move then Venture Cafe? 
okay. straight into Venture Cafe. And it's a funny story. I mean, something you said that I really want to elevate. Um, sometimes it seems like I'm confident, but it's just that I'm clear. Mm, I spend a I lot of time thinking, which, which you know. Yeah, I yeah. probably spend about <laughs> two hours a day in my head, thinking and meditating, yeah. kind of rolling over different ideas and concepts. But clarity creates confidence. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get caught in the anxiety and can't slow down and say, what is influencing my decision-making process? Mm -hmm. What are the goals that I want to accomplish? And what shadow work do I need to do to make sure that I make the right decision? Because oftentimes, trauma that's unaddressed, um, Mm. maybe some patterns that we haven't been willing to look at, will influence our decision making and steer us in the wrong direction. And so clarity, I think for me is yes, thinking about it, but also getting to a space where I'm aware of what could be getting in the way. That is so important. Um, I love that you talk about the shadow work. I always, I always think about like the black box, right? Like the black box of engineering is, you know, all these kinds of like Pandora's box of bugs and defects mm-hmm. and what have you. And I try not to think of it as a deficit, but things that still have to be resolved in order to get to that level of clarity. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in different iterations of your journey, sometimes like you're ready for it. And sometimes like it stays in the box until you're like, okay, okay. I'm, I'm in a space now where I can yep. handle it. And I love that you also mentioned like you're spending two hours a day, probably more, way more knowing you, <laughs> thinking, just thinking, you know, and it's easy, I think, to get caught up in this endless scroll and this endless like receiving of values and receiving of culture and not having the bandwidth in the space to say, well, what am I thinking about? Mm -hmm. How am I thinking about this? What do I need next personally for this space in my life? And what I've loved learning about you is the way in which you value mentorship and helping to build next generation of leaders and the thoughtfulness around what leadership looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point earlier that you know competency in leadership, it has to include some level of equity. Absolutely. And you work specifically with kids of color from all kinds of backgrounds and you expose them not just to i think you know professional opportunities which we think okay we get kids great jobs they pull their families out of you know maybe um economic circumstances Mm -hmm. that you know have been going on for generations but you take them on these international trips and projects you have them in service oriented projects and so maybe you can dive into the nia project and what led you to even begin that because it's it's been has it been almost a decade now next year will be 10 years. 10 years, 10 years. So, so start start us from the beginning there because yep. I feel like this entire space and just getting to know you through these years has been so indicative of you shaping that, you know, that mm-hmm. particular legacy that you're building. Yeah, so Nia Project is based off of the idea that access changes lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure we could talk forever about the different opportunities that you have, and we've talked, that you know, access, exposure to new things could yeah. just be life-changing. So I started the NIA project because I had a capstone in a leadership program and I had to do something. And I said, okay, well, why don't I take 
the young kids that I had been tutoring around, not really tutoring, but mentoring and doing workshops around resume building, kind of thinking strategically about getting a job, internship, all of these college access skill sets. Yeah. I'd always done that just because someone did it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Larry Jenkins from the Thurston Group of Washington State. He helped me get into college. And so I've always thought, pay it forward. And for my capstone project in this organization called New Leaders Council, I said, well, I want to take these kids to Ghana. I had a friend, family friend, who had started a school. And I noticed that all of the students from his university, where he was a professor of economics, were not people that look like me. Mm. And they'd write these experiences, and it was life-changing. And so I said, why can I start a program where we not only teach children leadership um, development through experiences abroad, but that we build wraparound supports to help them translate their new perspective into competitive essays that they can win scholarships. Mm. And so while NIA Project has evolved um, even more so with our EdTech platform and a lot Mm -hmm. of work that we do beyond the fellowship program into college access, it was always about developing leaders and giving them something so transformational that they could get into college. And so over the course of the time um, that since I started NIA Project in 2014, we've served about 100 fellows. That's incredible. Um, 100% of our NIA fellows get into college, over 98% win scholarships, and we've helped them unlock over $20 million worth of scholarships to attend That's incredible. School. So going to school, no debt. No debt. Ongoing exposure life-changing opportunities and I imagine just valuable connections that stick with them throughout their journeys we always we have a we have a saying in NIA project we say NIA project for life at least with our fellows and now we actually serve a lot more students we have we do leadership development for about 200 students locally in Miami-Dade County and then through our EdTech platform we actually have over 750 students enrolled and now with a partnership with Miami-Dade County Public Schools, we're training their CAP advisors, their college access practice advisors, on how to have more of an equity-driven lens mm-hmm. and a strategic skill set on supporting students uh, from underrepresented backgrounds. So I have a vision um, that NIA Project can hopefully unlock a billion dollars worth of scholarships, serve over 100,000 students Love in the that. years to come. But really, the numbers are great. But for me, I know the names of every single fellow. We text all the time. And it's so important when we understand that there are systemic barriers that are designed to exclude certain populations from access to higher education. Mm -hmm. City Foundation released a report recently that said black people have lost over 90 billion dollars worth of economic opportunity because of unequal access to higher education. We know that it costs thousands and thousands of dollars to get a coach to be able to help you navigate the process. We just saw Operation Varsity Blues, this huge scandal about getting into college. Yeah. And so where does that leave first generation, low-income students, students from historically disadvantaged backgrounds, um, immigrant students? They're kind of left without the support. And in school, they don't have curriculum. And so we're really filling an important gap, I think. Um, and it's it's just about creating more equity and access to opportunities. I love the lens in which you come from. Um, it's a very problem-solving posture to have because we know that the work of equity, I mean, just even the numbers, right? I think the $90 billion, because you do not have access to 
the education that is afforded to so many people. And it has nothing to do with your capability. It's 100% sometimes where you come from Mm -hmm. or where you don't come from. And that's frustrating. And I think even in your work from an entrepreneur, um, an entrepreneurial ecosystem perspective, um, I believe there's another report, uh, it was either by City or um, another major institution on $300 billion every year that's not unlocked because you know, minority firms do not get the same mm-hmm. level of access or opportunity when we think about gross receipts. Yep. And it's easy to kind of measure things from a monetary perspective. And it's easy to kind of look at these statistics and to become so very discouraged. And yet you've been able to develop several iterations of your work that is not necessarily just hyper-focusing on like, we gotta solve this problem, we gotta solve this problem, but how do we leverage the assets we have within mm-hmm. our communities in order to help others solve their own problems and then also become catalysts to solving problems for others? And maybe you can share a little bit more about how you manage the change, the, the the frustration, some of the evolving that you've also had to do to look at NIA Project from its beginnings to now celebrating almost a decade and, mm-hmm. and where it's going and also the still ongoing challenges of, hey, like kids, kids of color, kids coming from other countries don't get the same level of access. Like how do you kind of manage that and continue to do this work? That's a great question. It's, it's a good point to reflect on. I think for me, um, I try to operate my zone of genius. Mm-hmm. And we both know Felicia Hatcher, who talks about yes, zone of genius yes, all the time. And she always <laughs> she said to me one day, and just probably what precipitated the most recent reinvention that I'm that I'm going through right now. She said, Leanne, when are you going to just package your genius and sell it? Yeah. When are you just going to focus on that? And I said, Well, what exactly am like, what's my zone of genius? Mm. And I think for me, I'd say like my life's purpose, my zone of genius is really helping people see themselves and the world through the lens of pure potential. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm naturally able to see systems and solutions in a way that perhaps other people can't. And so I just lean into what I know that I have the capacity to do and where I deliver uniquely impactful results. Like one example is Tech Equity Miami. Mm-hmm. Started with a text message with myself um, and, and Raul Moas at Knight Foundation, who is a dear friend and kind of like co-founder in the effort. And we said, yes, Miami Tech is blowing up. It's on every single headline. Yeah. We've seen record amounts of venture capital deployment. But what about the rest of us? Mm-hmm. What is this going to look like in 20, 30 years from yeah. now? Yeah. And and so I got to a whiteboard and said, okay, well, how do we solve this? How do we think about this differently? And so ultimately what came out of that is is Tech Equity Miami is a hundred million dollar philanthropic funders consortium. Mm-hmm. The money is always there. We were we were always gonna put the money somewhere. Right. But not in a way that was collaborative, where we are elevating outcomes based initiatives that may not have the relationships to access dollars but are doing the work. And also to get funders together to say we're gonna focus on cradle to career inclusion. And it's this idea that tech can be the greatest accelerant of equity we've ever seen. We just don't think about tech that way. Yeah, yeah. We think about the outcome and the innovation, Mm -hmm. but rarely do we think about the people, the neighborhoods, the pipelines and systems that Mm -hmm. enable that genius to be able to be unlocked and not understanding that there are so many unique barriers for folks. And 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you know so much of my story too. Like I happened to go to a coding program in high school that was completely free, gave me a scholarship every year for college, exposed me to internships at places mm-hmm. like Microsoft. And perhaps I would have been on a general track to college. However, coming from a single parent household, you know, being brown in a very, very white city and environment, mm-hmm. I needed the exposure of women and folks of color who looked like me and were teaching these these skills and languages and could show me what their career was like in a very tangible way helping me to understand that yes this space is also for me you know at the end of the day and um, I, I I love the the idea of hey listen the money is there we've got to pull it together here absolutely and help people understand and direct it to the spaces that they forget it actually exist. And to that point, I think that requires you to embrace your identity as an innovator. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we've talked about um, that I had trouble doing. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, and you mentioned this, this idea, I call it inspiration capital, being exposed and having access to people whose, experience, whose lived experiences relate to yours. Yeah. I was a lawyer. A black lawyer. I'm not an innovator. Every innovator, if you Google innovator and you go to maybe the second or third image that comes up, all white men and yeah. a white woman. Yeah. Innovators, we're not taught that innovation is for us. No, no. I mean, it was, we talked about Bill Gates. Every quote was about what Elon Musk was doing or Mark Zuckerberg. It was not a Jewel Burke Solomon. It wasn't Aisha Evans. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, a, a Tope Abatana. A Sherelle Dorsey. A Sherelle Dorsey, you know. But I think to that point, <laughs> Part of what I want to focus some of my time on doing now, and, and you've been on, I think you've been on my podcast, yeah. it's really about reinventing who we define yeah. as innovators. With, with, we are innovators. Everybody has the capacity to innovate. Yeah. And if you really look in the history and the stories, you know, folks of color and folks from marginalized backgrounds have been innovating all the time. And by necessity or by exclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we have to understand that really the currency of innovation is freedom. Mm. And the problem is people from marginalized backgrounds don't have equal access to the freedom. And so they can't see themselves as innovators. They can't see what specific things that they're doing is yeah. naturally innovation. Innovation isn't technology. Innovation is simply the process of creating something new. And we do it all the time. And we need more people like you, like me, to see themselves as innovators because the things that we create are really solving the problems that most impact our communities. What I love, and and I think this speaks true to also, you know, your writing and I think the way that you show up also online and the language that you use, like language is so critical to our sense of self Mm -hmm. and language can either be used to build or it can destroy. Um, that's even why like, I wrote my book, Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us, because it was about how do we give language to folks who are not ever going to be in the rooms with us, but they need to understand how to navigate this new space as technology and automation completely changes how we work. I want you to dive in a little bit, and, and you referenced this a bit earlier around you're going through another reinvention yes. and an innovation, and you've built so many incredible things, and it seems like you could rest on your laurels, but there's something about 
and especially you know in, in our series of conversations, there's something about the ongoing challenge mm-hmm. um, that I think is innately in who you are as a person and where you see gaps to fill that seems to kind of drive this forward movement or maybe mm-hmm. it pulls you towards, hey, there's so much more that I'm capable of doing as well. Like this has been great and I have you know, done this and I've created and lifted others up and yet my work still is not yep. complete. So walk me through this next reinvention that you're, that you're going through. So the work that I am doing now is um, with my own hat. So typically, and I'll, I'll be honest, like I was scared to give 100% to my own platform. Mm. Because like most people, a platform is a security blanket. If it's an organization, if it's a job, it is the thing, you know, for me, I'm reinventing my identity is not relative to the things that I have built, but to the value that I have in the work that I deliver with me. And so the work that I'm doing now is helping leaders accelerate equity as a equity and inclusive innovation advisor, where I know I'm great at project work in the sense that I love to come in and work with organizations and help them build their capacity to become equity practitioners in the context of their existing projects or existing strategies, or maybe new ones that we can Mm -hmm. help design together. And that I think is exciting because there's so many organizations that are well-intentioned and a lot of people would be first to point the fingers and say you failed you didn't do well that's not equitable and i'm actually like no that's great you just need some help um let's work together to change the way you see things to change how you're assessing things to redesign your models of accountability to to reimagine what action looks like on an ongoing basis and really giving people a blueprint if you will for how to embed equity into their work and i think that that is a more productive way to see impact at scale okay yeah yeah i think the way we have traditionally attempted to attack the equity conversation, um, it works for a little while, but it seems to be either a little bit superficial mm-hmm. or not long lasting. Exactly. And so I, I love this this approach. It is systemically tapping in to a space or a a way to completely transform what does leadership actually look like and how is business done on a strategic lens that doesn't create a separation of equity Yeah, and it being in its own department, <laughs> but it actually being built into the ethos of everything that, that ends up being created from here on out. The way that I describe it is when we think about the acronyms, yeah. DEI, ESG, CSR, all the things. All the things. The way we traditionally approach it is by process or program. Mm-hmm. But the reality is equity is a creature of culture. It is, and you know the phrase, culture eats strategy for lunch. Mm-hmm. So all, all of the approaches to achieving equity, either through organizations and community, are all strategic. Yeah. Um, and, and so my approach is, let's just focus on who actually reinforces, sets, and challenges and changes culture. Leaders. And they're an exist, just like everything else I've built, they're an existing asset that we're not utilizing because we're not focusing on people. People are who create equity. Mm -hmm. Systems actually just reinforce things that people believe and do. 
And so by changing the way that we think about how we build equity in organizations to focusing on building capacity in the leaders who have the influence, who set the social norms, who have the power, soft and direct, to change how an organization runs is actually probably the best way to approach it. Yeah. It's what I've seen work in my practice. And you know, one of the projects they were, we worked on recently, we were able to get a $10 million commitment from a large financial firm. Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase says this is a model that should be in every community. But we didn't just propose an idea. We started with the leaders within the organization and really said, how do we help you achieve your goal with equity? Mm-hmm. We, have a, we have a thing, but really, how do we help you become more equitable? And I think those types of approaches to equity are more sustainable, to your mm-hmm. point. And then they ultimately change culture, which is the biggest system that reinforces inequities that we never talk about. I love all of this, all of the words, all of the things, <laughs> all of the purpose. I mean, you know, obviously like we've built a great friendship and it is always inspiring. And I love as well that you are stepping into your own platform. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, you've, you've carried so much. And I think this next version of yourself is going to be, I mean, all of your work has been impactful, but this next level seems to be so apropos. And it also seems like, everything prior to that has prepared you Absolutely. for this now Leanne is, is, is center stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really excited about that. So tell, t- talk to me and our viewers and our listeners about what reinvention, you know, what that definition for you looks like. And for anyone who is starting to feel that pull of I've got to make a transition or I've got to pivot or I am now trying to figure out how to do something in a more impactful way, mm-hmm. um, how they actually start, yep. how they start to think about that. I would say on a foundational level, to me, reinvention is healing your relationship to change. Mm. We all have a relationship to change and sometimes it's not good. Sometimes it's filled with anxiety. Yep. Sometimes it's filled with apprehension. And sometimes it is, it's really defined by control and wanting to control every aspect of what comes next. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the first stage to reinvention is really saying, how do I feel about change? And how might I bring in curiosity versus control into what's gonna be the next phase of your life? And I think that sets you in the right mindset to begin to see things that you might not have seen. There's a phrase that says, when you change the way you see things, the things you see begin to change. And so when you step back from reinvention and stop seeing it as like, I'm gonna lose everything or everything that I've done is not gonna be relevant or I could fail in the next thing and just say, hmm, what fun could I have? Mm -hmm. How curious could I get about what I can change in this next chapter? Then I think the road and the path becomes clear because you have less, kind of anxiety or other things clouding your vision. So I'd say where to start is just to think about what brings you joy. Mm-hmm. Talk to your friends. I do this I do this exercise called four quadrants and people that I work with, high impact leaders. And you know, what are your superpowers? Felicia always says this, what's your zone of genius? Go take your genius jam yeah. kind of workshop. What 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 are your superpowers? What are you good at that you like to do? Zone of kind of excellence. What are you good at that you have no business doing and you do not want to do? And then what are you not good at and you don't want to do? And I think that starts, for me, that's a really good place to start to see where do I focus my energy, that top left quadrant. 
I think another way to think about starting is to write down what you want your headstone to read. Mm. That is the... It's that like end of life, existential... What will it read? I worked 90 hours a week at a law firm. Mm. I traveled across the country, never saw my family. Mm-hmm. I worked on billion dollar cases, bought some nice things, or how did you change the world? Mm-hmm. And I think those kind of exercises are tangible ways to maybe make reinvention less esoteric and more practical right. for an everyday person that wants to get started. Yeah, I love that. And I love the examples of exercises. And I don't know if you've ever done the exercise of like, write your eulogy. Like, what does your eulogy say? And then like, work backwards. Yeah. Because now you have to live up to what that end of life conversation actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. I, I thank you for your work. I thank you for joining me on the road to reinvention and always giving us some tools and some gems to take away. I am just so grateful for you. Thank you for the opportunity. This was so much fun. Always. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the road to reinvention. If you find yourself moved or feeling free after tuning in, make sure to leave a review on your favorite listening platform and share this with someone, you know, who may be navigating a similar journey. You do not have to do this alone. To hang out with me more, head over to join our Fluency newsletter at ShereleDorsey.com. Until next episode, may you embrace your need to recreate, revitalize, and reinvent yourself over and over.